So, good morning, everybody. We're, we're, uh, we're learning today on the topic of resilience. Resilience is, um, thank you all for being resilient because, uh, and the delayed start and the print sources are being printed as we speak. Um, uh, thank you all for being resilient. This is actually a topic which is the closing a four-part series that we are learning on on the topic called Ingredients of Nationhood. As we move through the t this, this general time in um, our calendar where we learn the parashiyas that talk about the building of the nation of Israel, it's important to understand what are some of the natural compelling ingredients of becoming a nation. I'd like to start off by thanking three sponsors this morning. First of all, I want to say thank Arnie and Sharon Rosenberg who are sponsoring today's share in honor of the Yorzat of Mrs. Bela Bura. That's Sharon's mother, Bela Bas Avram Yitzhak Ali Shalom's Yorzat was just a few weeks past. Bezras Hashem, she should have a continued alias Neshama. Also this week, we are thinking um, uh, about um, Marilyn, uh, Marilyn and Elliot Lauer, who are sponsoring in honor of Marilyn's mother. This is the fourth yard site now. can't believe it's already four, four years till Tubishvat, uh, which is the yard site for Mrs. Judith um, Steinberg. Yehudis, Liba Bas, Simcha HaKoyen, Alea Shalom, and Baruch Hashem. There are many wonderful Tzayim who are named for, and many institutions named for the continued legacy that she leaves behind. And also this morning, we take the moment to, to, to thank Chai and Josh, who are sponsoring for the 10th yard side of Chai's father, which will be this coming Wednesday, for Shlomo Ben Pesach David, Alava Shalom, who I did not get a chance to meet, but I continue to get to meet the Kiddush Hashem that he started and continues to make in this world. Be'ezaz Hashem, it should be a continued alias neshama for him and for the Anachizuk, for the whole Mishpacha. Thank you for being here. Let's, let's learn together, folks. So the story starts at a very, um, I would say, humble moment in our, in our Jewish history. And there's many humble moments in Jewish history, and the Torah and the Gomorrah does not cover those, those moments up. The Torah tells us them in, in, full, in, full, uh, in full definition. So the moment is, is to be found actually a few weeks' time in Pasha's Kisisa, where the nation of Israel have arrived at Har Sinai, and they have, there's this remarkable moment of Matan Torah. Hashem says this nation is worthy of giving the Torah. And what ends up happening is just a few, minutes, just a few short days later, they make a miscalculation. And whatever the, the, the Cheshbon is, we, everybody always has a Cheshbon. Everybody always has some sort of explanation. But they blow it. They, they, they're, they're dancing around a golden calf as Moshe comes down the mountain. I mean, the first commandment that Hashem made, gave after Matan Torah and Pashas Yisrael this week, is don't make for yourself don't make golden or silver gods. The first thing they do is they make a golden silver god, which means obviously Hashem understood, their, got their number, you know what I'm saying? He, he understood exactly what the problem was. And they did this. So this is, this, this is, is, is what happens. It's a very tragic moment. And Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayomar Hashem Moshe, what a stubborn people. And this is the first, this is the beginning of the indictment, which, and uh, the, this follows with the number of psukim in which Hashem says, they are therefore worthy of destruction. We're going to start the whole process again. Moshe Rabbeinu, you will be now the seed of the new nation. And the rest of the folks, well, too bad, good, goodbye and good luck. And that's essentially what Hashem um, suggests. Moshe Rabbeinu puts himself in front of the train. He says that he's going to, Moshe Rabbeinu says, I'm not going to let you, you have to have mercy. He's able to hold off the destruction of the people. 
And there's this incredible negotiation which goes on through Perak, Lamed Beis, Lamed Gimel, and Lamed Dalet in Sefer Shemot. And Kisses are the first and the second Aliyah in Pasha's Kisses are extremely long. It's about Moshe Rabbeinu defending Israel for, for, for this, uh, from this, um, this terrible end. Um, and uh, what ends up happening, interestingly enough, is that if you, if you fast forward a Kaval Prakim into this whole thing, once Moshe Rabbeinu has averted destruction, once Moshe Rabbeinu has succeeded in being the defense agent for the nation of Israel, then Moshe Rabbeinu says the strangest thing. He says the following. He says, Vayomer, in source 2, Vayomer, Hashem. Hashem, look, if I found favor in your eyes, um, Hashem let Hashem go in our midst. Meaning Hashem has now said, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm not going to be with you. I'll, 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 I'll send another agency, but I'm not going to be with you. Why should you come and join us, says Moshe Rabbeinu? Ki am Because they are such a stubborn people. And you should give us forgiveness for all of our sins, intentional or not. Reminds me of the story. There's a, um, there was a, a, a fellow on the bus in Israel. You know, the buses in Israel, the, the roads were not made for buses. You know, this is, we're talking about the times of antiquity, and now you have buses driving down the streets, the, the, the kaleidoscope of eras in Israel's society. And, and there's buses coming down this hairpin bend at the bottom of a, of, of a, of a curve, and there's, and there's a car parked in the middle of the road, you know? And so, so um, the bus driver is really upset. He's got a schedule. He's got people. The whole thing, and uh, and so he's busy honking and and making the noise. And a lady comes out of the makolet, just at the corner, at the bottom of the thing, and she looks at the bus and she says, rega," and she says, and she goes back in to go make her payment for the roglach, you know. <laughs> and as as she does that, the bus driver says, "I'm kshiorev." <laughs> These stubborn people, these Jews, look at them. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu is saying. But the funny thing is, is Moshe Rabbeinu is using the very term Hashem uses to indict the people, which is so strange. The defense lawyer should not be re- mentioning this. Mention everything else. They're fantastic. They're good at hosting people. They're very good, they're, they're very good when, it, when it comes to running political campaigns. They're fantastic news hosts. They'll be great lawyers. Doctors you, you, uh, will abound. Something, but not Am Arif. That's you know, the, wrong, the wrong terminology for Moshe Rabbeinu to use. Right? He's using what Hashem had used at the beginning of the argument of prosecution as the argument of defense as to why Hashem should come back, which is fascinating. So you see something interesting over here without even getting into any, any solutions or resolutions. You see something interesting. And that is that Am Oref, the notion of this stubbornness, on the one hand is the Achilles heel, and on the other hand is also the saving grace. That's what it seems to be. The, a dialectic. A dialectic. Now, by the way, so, as, as Dr. Yeager points out in psychology, is a dialectic. And all good values in life are dialectics. All important values in life are complex. If you have something which, which wins all the time, it does, it's not really winning. There has to be something which is it's more nuanced than that. So let's, let's try to understand this dialectic. Let's try to, try to zone in on, on this notion of, uh, of resilience. Maybe, yeah. Uh, this is that what you said. It's perseverance over time. You know, if you, you're a stiff-necked people, you know, you, you believe in what you believe in. No matter what happens, right, you still retain. Good, good. So, Abby, Abby, you're making a suggestion as to why it can be positive. So this it certainly has positive aspects. It certainly has negative aspects as well. So the question just is, is this, is this something we should aspire for? Is it as well called kickback benefit of just being really difficult? You know, we have to think about uh, of, uh, um, how, this, how this plays itself out in, in, our, in our national and personal character. Now, by the way, I will point out, now that you mentioned the word perseverance, 
We all love Angela Duckworth and grit. You know, everybody should wear, read it. But that's, that's about personal grit. Right, and you can go to West Point and do all the research you want, and it's fantastic. And grit is a very important part of what this generation is missing. Um, we're like toilet paper, the millennials. Right, that's that's uh, that, that we're no, no no backbone, no 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 strength. That's that's important. That's all individualistic. Meaning today, all books are written to individuals. We're talking on a national scheme, so we have to think about this as a nation, not just as like what's what's the best way that we can succeed in the business world as uh, as individuals. So let's let's try to delve in. It's interesting actually, by the way, that the, the, even Ezra already comments on this. All the Mephorshim notice this is very strange. So as an example, just to appreciate how people try to sidestep this, he quotes Rebbe Marinos in Source Three. He says, Al das Rabbi Marinos, Aval Arefu. So what Moshe Rabbeinu is saying is, what does the word key mean? It doesn't mean because. He says, despite the fact. Now, key is an ambiguous word. It has multiple meanings. So Ibn Ezra says it's, it's being used in its less usual form here. So defend this nation. Come and, come and spend time with them, Hashem, despite the fact that they're as bad as you talked about. They're just very difficult. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu is saying. But again, clearly, that is moving away from the direct pshat. But Ibn Ezra is struggling with the issue that we're struggling with, which is how is Moshe Rabbeinu using this as a tool of defense? So it comes down to an interesting fact. Wherever you see this notion, this idea of stubbornness or strength of character, you see that it, comes, it has a degree of ambiguity. So an example of this, to, to me, is always this fascinating Gemara. The first time I learned this Gemara, I was just, it it's explains so much about, about who we are. The Gemara is describing um, the, the, a, 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 a very related characteristic called Azponim, Azus, right? So the Gemara says the following, it talks about tur, a Turmusa. A Turmus is translated as a lupine. Or, um, so if you take a look, just flip the page, just put in the, 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 one of the encyclopedia entries of here. Or lupine or lupinus is a, is a, is a type <coughs> of uh, um, blue bonnet or it's a genus of flowers um, from the legume family. And um, it's found, of course, in the Mediterranean, which is why the Gomorrah is talking about it, because it's clearly a local, a local uh, vegetation. And, um, and, it, and these lupine beans were used by the Romans, the Roman Empire, of course, by the times of the Talmud as well. And one of the interesting things about it is they were very hard to process. So you can find these. Actually, the picture over there is actually in Tel Aviv, where they're grown naturally, um, these, these lupinus bushes. And, um, and what is interesting is is that they, um, the beans require an incredible amount of processing in order to be um, rendered um, digestible. I always wondered who the first person was who discovered these things, like eggplants, you know? <laughs> like, how do they work? Like, how many people do go sick before you suddenly realize you need to salt it and soak it, you know what I'm saying? Anyways, but nonetheless, so they, they tried really hard and they worked it out. And the, the Gemara says that Turmusa, this, this lupine bean, that it, it, it cuts away the feet of the haters of Israel. That's a euphemism. Whenever the Gemara says the word Soinei Yisrael, it refers to Israel, Israel themselves. So it, it's a euphemism to say that the, this bean is going to cut the feet away from the haters of Israel, meaning a.k.a. Israel. Right? Why? Why, why, why is this a, 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 such a negative thing for us? Now that's not a small list. That's basically a, a list of every single culture around them. They served every single culture, culture around them. And Hashem told them not to. And Hashem told them to destroy them. And Hashem told them to make barriers. And they didn't listen. They served all of these various gods. Um, so, so what's, what, what's the understanding of what does this mean? So the Gemara continues. 
if it says that they left God, any adair shalayavadu, does it not make sense that obviously they weren't serving him? This, this, this lupine bean, what do you do? You soak it seven times. And after a while, it just gets a little softer. It becomes more digestible. And you can start using it as an hors d'oeuvre. At a certain point, even the toughest of, um, of plant species can be domesticated. He says, however, our, my children weren't the same to me. Meaning to say, that well, what's, what's the more essential, what's the indictment? Is that Israel, after punishment, after punishment, after punishment, Sefer Shoftim essentially is one, um, we'll call it, um, basic model, which is that B'nai Israel leave God, they are put into some form of exile, some, some nation comes and subjugates them, they call out, Hashem sends the Savior, the Savior saves them, there's a moment of, of relief, and then the, the cycle starts again. It's the same cycle, it's a four-step cycle, and it happens again and again and again. So by Perik Yud, in Sefer Shoftim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, what's with these people? Right, every two minutes, they just keep going back. Do they not learn, do they not read, do they not listen to what their grandparents told them? It's the same thing. So we're not talking about an extreme, extreme amount of time, 20 years, 40 years, sometimes shorter. When it came to how the cycle went. So what Hashem is saying is, they didn't, they didn't get softer. However many times I soaked them, they just keep going back. That's what essentially is being said over here. So the, the, this bean, in a certain sense, is, is, a, is a terrifying metaphor for the nation. So the Gemara then goes on to say the following. So the, the lesson learned from this is, Tana Mishmed Rebbe Meir, Mipnei Ma Nitna Torah Israel. Why was the Torah given to Israel? Mipnei Shein Azin. Because they are um, brazen or impudent. Um, um, from his right hand was this fiery law. Because of their, of their brazenness and their impudence, that is why it is that they deserve to have the Torah given to them. Um, because that there was no, if the Torah were not to be given to them, there would be no nation which could stand in front of them. Okay, so the, this is why, sorry, um, I, I, just, I skipped a line. This nation deserves to get this fiery law. There's another statement which says, their, their culture is of fire. So there's two versions of, what, of the Torah's relationship to the nation of Israel. One is, because they are, um, we'll call brazen, obstinate, strong-minded people, that's why they got the Torah. And Hashem, for some reason, found that the best platform to give to Israel was a, a stubborn nation. However, the, the other version of this is, no, Hashem needed to give them Torah to tone them down. Because they are such difficult people that now that when you give them the Torah, now, so to speak, it normalizes them. So now they are manageable to be, to be dealt with. It's interesting. Is it because of despite the fact, in a certain sense, that, that the Torah was given to in these two versions of the Gemara? And the Gemara continues to say, So there are three stubborns in their you know, we'll call it respective genome, uh, and that, that is Israel among the nations. The most, most as, the most brazen, the most impudent, the most obstinate of all nations among the nations is Israel, as the Gomorrah says. So you see an interesting thing over here, and that is, is that the same d- level of duality exists in the Gomorrah. On the one hand, it sounds like, according to the first version of this, of this Gomorrah, it sounds like actually it's ac- it is a ma'ala, it is a, a characteristic of 
um, desire that Hashem chose to give the Torah to Israel. Because you are us, I'm going to give you the Torah. On the other hand, it sounds like the second version is more negative. No, 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 no. You needed the Torah because that was your therapy. That's the, that's the way to, 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 to tone down this, this difficult, the difficulty among the nations, and that's how the Torah is going to work with you. So that in a certain sense, it's despite the fact that you are as the Torah is going to help you normalize yourself as well. So the, so the question then comes back is, so what is, so, so, so is it good or is it bad? Is it, uh, if it's good, what is that goodness? Like what is, what is the goodness that Hashem chose the Torah for as, as well in this, in this particular case? The Ben Yehoyada, anyone remember who the Ben Yehoyada is? On the Gemara? The Ben Yishchai, right, the Ben Yishchai um, who lived in Baghdad in the 1800s, one of the great Sephardi um, leaders of the generation. Baghdad was one of the greatest centers of, of Jewry for so many centuries. Until the, until 1940, the 1940s in the Farhud, until that time, the, 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 the marketplace in Baghdad would shut down on, 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 on Saturday just because there were so many Jews involved in the marketplace. It was a very, very deeply, deeply Jewish culture which was completely lost today. Completely lost today. You go to Iraq today, there's nothing left of that, of, the, of centuries and centuries of, of, uh, of, uh, of Jewish life and culture. But nonetheless, and the Ben Yishchai wrote a very beautiful pirush from the Gemara called the Ben Yehudai. He actually wrote two pirush from the Gemara, but we're going to focus on the Ben Yehudai right now. And he says, actually, it's interesting, the way he says it is, is that the mashal he gives is that, imagine that, the, that you have a city, and the city is about to be under, come under attack by a terrifying host that's on the borders of the country, and they know that they don't have the military strength to be able to fight, but they do know that they perhaps have the financial strength that they're able to send a gift, we, we'll call that a bribe, to, this, uh, to, the, to the folks coming in, um, they'll be able to avert the, the potential conquest. So they decide they need to do a campaign um, to, um, to, to, to raise this money. So what they do is, is that they go to, the first they go to the, the, one of the rich fellows in town, and they go to this fellow who is the greatest miser in town um, to, to collect the money. Why? So, so, that is, so they say, look, so we're about to be destroyed, and if you don't do this, your whole business, your warehouses, the whole thing that's going to be, going to be cut down. And so the man makes his donations. So he says, but why did you come to me first? So he says, look, if we went to all the generous folks in town and we collected from them, then, you know, the trickle-down effect. Everybody else will say, of course, of course, naturally, they're all generous. But if we come to you first and you're willing to make a great donation, then everybody else will obviously say, well, if, if, if he, you know, he's the kind of guy who gives $18 on the, you know, the capital campaign, you know, so, and, but now he's giving money, real money. So they're going to say, okay, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do this. So, so they start with that. So the, the, the Ben, ben Yoda is saying, so what does Hashem do? He says, Hashem says, I want to, I want to transform the world. So what I do, I come to the most difficult of folks first. Now, it happens to be that he's saying that the comparison is not between Israel and the nations, it's actually between Israel in its state in the desert versus the fathers, the patriarchs. If Hashem had given the Torah to the patriarchs and matriarchs, then everybody said, of course, they're wonderful, celebrated, um, um, people of integrity. We know we understand that. But when it comes down to the, to the, to the, the, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, you know, the apple fell a little further from the tree. That's, that's the way he, he understands, and that's what's happening over here. Is let's go to the, the toughest nuts first, and then we'll, and we also learn from that as well. So we'll see how it, uh, it, it works. That's the way the Binyo Yoda understands the Gomorrah. There's many different explanations into this, in, the, in this Gomorrah. But I, I do want to just re re reference one beautiful Josh, which was given in Tel Aviv just about, about almost 100 years ago by Rav Avigdal Amiel. And if anybody has ever had, had the opportunity of reading the Drashot El Ami, Rav Amiel, it's, it's, it's just so beautiful. It's so beautiful. He has a beautiful Joshua on the, uh, on, on the, the, uh, the special Shabbat Sim, which is Shkalem, um, Zachor, Parah, and Hachodesh. 
And this drasha is on Shkalim, and he says, to, and by the way, these drashas were not when they're saying, Rabbi, we need to speak for nine minutes. You know what I'm saying? These are significant drashas. Yeah, they're essays of like, you know, 20 pages. Okay, so you have to get comfortable to read these. But he, he, what's amazing is, is listen to this, this phrase. It's just such po- poetry in Source 8. He says, we as a nation have included in our midst We are the strongest and the weakest of all nations. We are the strongest and the weakest of all nations at the same time. They are not a contradiction in our in our midst. When it comes to leading a country, we're the weakest. I mean, like, we, you, you can barely put a government together in two years, right? On the other hand, when it comes down to living a diaspora life, we're the strongest of all nations. We just don't, you know, we just can't be stamped out. And no matter how, no matter how many attacks, and, and no matter the fact that, that, that in, in the year 2020, for all religious hate crimes, Jew, um, the Jews, which constitute less than 1%, 2% of the American population, um, much less than that, actually, um, um, actually, in fact, are, uh, are responsible for 54% of all the hate, uh, um, religious hate crimes in, in this country, I mean, in the, in the West, they, they still refuse to be stamped out. That's what, that, that's what he says. It's the same, at the same time, the weakest and the strongest. The Az and the, and, 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 uh, and the Boishas at the same time. So let's try to, try to appreciate what, for what reason. So AB had a suggestion about, about the resilience of this nation. So I'd like to suggest three ideas, three, three ideas as to why it is a necessary component of this nation is as panim, this brazenness, this obstinateness of this nation. The first is to be found in Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, who comments on this pasuk, and he says a profound statement. And any educator would appreciate this statement, such appreciation. Anybody who's, who's had to work with transforming the lives of other people, especially younger people, um, would appreciate this statement in, 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 with such depth. He says the following in Source 9. That of which Moses previously had had only pre- um, pre- um, presentment um, of it being, being God's intention in choosing the most of nation had now beca- been made absolutely clear to him. Just as it was their political weakness and abandoned helplessness which made Israel the most suitable nation for the revelation of God's power to govern human history, so it was the natural innate obstinacy of the race which made it the most suitable for the revelation of the divinity of his Torah by the means of which God showed his mightiness of his power of education. Just because it is a stiff-necked people, should God wander in their midst to show them on this hardest of nation the wonderful educational power of his Torah and of his sway, and forgive them again and again, and go on forgiving them, every pardon presupposes a step towards the betterment until the miracle of education of Israel shall have become accomplished, and this hardest of all peoples shall have in reality become God's own forever. Meaning, we're the difficult student in the room, and you know that it's easy to teach easy kids. You have one who sits in the front, and you know you sneeze and they take notes, you know, and, and everything is, is fantastic, and, uh, and you, everything you intuit they have, and you, they put up their hand before you ask the question. They're wonderful students. But then there's the one in the back, the back of the room, you know, and when it comes to parent-teacher evening, you call in the parents and they kind of sit in their chair the same kind of way as the kid and you kind of understand where this all comes from, right? And, you know, and if at best they hear three words, which is it's recess time in class, that's all really, that, that's really all that they're picking up from, from class. And you, try, you turn that child around. You know, there was, a, there, was a, there was a video going around a number of years ago 
about an, about an educator, and there's no offense here to any lawyers, but there, there was a, but there's a wonderful clip called "What Do Teachers Make," and it's a it's a beautiful thing. And, and this fellow was describing that he's sitting at the table, and and there's this lawyer at the table, and he's a teacher, and the lawyers the lawyer starts laughing. He says, he says, "So what do teachers make?" Right, which is one of the, the saddest things about our society is that the things that we value the most we pay the least for in society. Right, meaning education, which is the future of the country and our children. We pay the least amount of money for people to do the, to the job, and and you know somebody who's a sports coach, you know, who can make a lot of money, which is which is fantastic. But like you know, their contribution to society is virtually nil, besides for getting people into seats. Right, so. If you think about it, so the this, this says, what do teachers make? You know, like, haha, like, tell me, show, show me your tax return. Like, you know, you know, can can you can you afford, you know, the 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 um, you know, the regular uh, car payments? So the the the, the fellow turns around. And he says, I'll tell you what teachers make. And he has a whole long slew. It's a very beautiful description. He says, I make a C student to an A student. I make I make parents fear when they hear the phone ringing during supper time. I'll tell you what I make. I make children feel good about themselves. I make children who have no sense of who they are understand where they're going in life. And he goes on a whole list of what I make, right? And if you think about this for a moment, the ability to be able to, and every parent has this opportunity of trying to make a child, to make a child, and perhaps the most difficult of children turn around is, is, is the is, is, is perhaps where the greatest of success is. Those who everybody else wrote off, those who nobody else cared about. Says, says, says Rav Hirsch, that was the Jewish people. The Jewish people were a difficult student. The power of choosing the Azponim of this obstinate nation and turning them around is the most remarkable, um, we'll call it educational moment in all of world history. Rav Hirsch actually goes further to say this, and it's not just because it's, uh, it's about you know, the difficulty of the enterprise. It's more than that. And he says, actually, in, in yesterday's parish, in Parashas B'Shalach, he says the following, the following observation. You know, B'nai Yisrael, 10 Makos, 10 for 10, right, then Kriyas Yamsov, everything has taken place. Everything is such a powerful, beautiful uh, d d display of godliness. We wish we could have seen something like that. They walk through the Yamsov, three days later, God, where's the water? <laughs> like, I mean, really. And then, again, water, and then bread, and then water. I mean, they're just complaining all the time. So, like, what's going on with these people? Says, says Rav Hirsch, the same idea. It's a, it's the match, it matches his thought. It's so brilliant. Source 10. Um, I'm just going to start from, uh, from the fifth, sixth line in by the, uh, by the period. He says, These continuous doubts form an important proof of the truth of Moses' mission. As Rabbi Yudah Levi remarks in the Kuzari, Moshe, uh, Moshe had to deal with a clear-minded people whose minds were not befogged by fantastic ideas, who are not easily taken in or convinced by the, fir by the first man who comes along. If then ultimately this very people have cheerfully given themselves up for centuries to fight the world and to die for the teachings of Moses, it is a proof that they are sending of this Moshe must, be won, must have won them in an unassailable conviction by the force of actual deeds and occurrences. So that means to say, what is the, they're, they're complaining about? is to show you these weren't some sort of cult-following, feeble-minded folks, you know, who met in a basement somewhere, and this great, fantastic, charismatic fellow says, you know, that the UFO is going to be coming to pick us up on the third Tuesday of next year, and we're all going to sit on the top of the mountaintop in, in robes. No, that's not the folks. They're like, really? Get out of here. That was the kind of people they were. They don't trust anybody. They're the, they're the, the telemarketers, nobody. They're not going to be listening. So that's, that's the type of people that the, the Jews were. So Hashem does all these miracles and they're still complaining about water. So you know what happens? Is when they become educated, when they, when they really start drinking the Kool-Aid, that's the most remarkable sign of the truth of this whole enterprise. Because they are the ones who wouldn't have believed anybody else. 
When you have that kid who didn't believe in anything, who didn't believe in themselves, didn't care about anything, and suddenly they now become your ambassador for this idea, there's nothing more that, um, nothing more that sells that idea. That's exactly what Hashem was doing. He was educating the most difficult kid to be able to be there. That's what Rav Hirsch was saying. And that's the, this interesting dialectic of the Azpon and this obstinacy being, in fact, the best platform for, for education. And then comes back to the Ben Yohaya does Marshall now. If you can do that for him, then everybody else is going to listen too. Right? If, he, if, this, if this child can do it, then everybody else is able to do it. This is the way Rav Hirsch looks at it. It's a very powerful, powerful presentation um, in terms of education. But there's another... The English keeps calling Jewish people a race. Yes, oh, by the way, I was noticing that. So you know that this, this whole discussion in general is, is understanding what Judaism is. And it's interesting, Rav Hirsch in Germany was already starting to describe this, which itself is, a, is, a, is very controversial because you know, just push it forward a few years, we're in the 1800s now, the Judaism being seen as a race is a very dangerous thing because then it moves into eugenics and then it ultimately moves into sterilization into euthanasia. That's, that's really the, the danger of this. Of, of this, but it, this is what is Judaism? Is Judaism a culture? Is it a race? Is it a nation? All these things become very complicated, and uh, that that use of that word is is is, is of complex nature. Good, good. It, I, is, I, it does. It does. Race. Correct, and therefore, in a certain sense, those characteristics are transferable, right? Those characteristics um, are, are are able to be transferred without getting into the epigenetics of uh, of, uh, of of education. Okay, so very, very interesting point. I was, I was, I was thinking about that much as, as we were reading it as well. Okay, so this is observation number one. Observation number two, and this, this I think we that many of us, many of us uh, relate to, and that is the Midrash says in, in uh, Shmois, Perik, Pasha, Membeis, Amr Yehuda ben Pol Vaya, Shemri Meir, Ruim Haim Lehe'arev, the nation of Israel, um, are, are sh- should be, so to speak, their necks should be broken. The most chotzof, again, another way of describing this, impudent of all the nations is Israel. So it sounds like this is a, this is a negative attribution. So it sounds like a bad thing. And it's really actually to be to, to the greatest praise. Um, it's very hard to, to, to translate that, but I think it means is, is that, uh, is, yeah, is, is whether to be a Jew or whether to be a Christian. Um, the, the Jews in the diaspora are called the nation of, of strong-willed people, of stiff-necked people. And I think what the Medrash is essentially saying right now is, is that the reason why this is such an important attribute is because when you have a nation that is so obstinate and so strong and so brazen, so resilient, perhaps in a positive way of framing it, they don't let go. They don't let go throughout all of history. Yafa Eliach, Aleah Shalom, has a very beautiful book called Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust. In it, she describes, there's many, many remarkable stories there. In it, she describes a, um, a particular Yom Kippur in one of the concentration camps. And, um, and, and these, these people who were emaciated by, beyond our capacity to even imagine. We don't even have the ability to, to empathize um, with what they were going through. Um, um, didn't eat that day. And this is, this is a, in, in, a, in, a, in a culture, in a, in a surrounding where um, every morsel, every calorie is, is perhaps the difference between life and death. And so one of the Nazi officers came to this, uh, to the, the commander came to the to the, the inmates, and he said the following. This is just a quotation. It's not in the sources, but he says, 
I know that you, you fasted today, but I'm not going to invoke the death penalty you deserve according to the law. Instead, you're going to climb that mountain and slide down on your stomachs. So you ask them to, to slide down in the mud on the rocks on their stomachs. Those among you who would like to repent may, uh, may say that you were wrong to disobey army regulations of, and fasting today. Those who wish to, may, uh, to do so may raise their hands. So you can eat now. Now think about this. You know, offering food on Yom Kippur, people who had every reason to say, Pikuach Nefesh, every, every swallow that you can, can, can in the book. Not a single hand went up. And so he made them climb to, to the top of this mountain. They all had to slide down. Can you imagine? The, the scratches, the pain. And, and we're at a stage where, you know, forget about us when we're fasting and complaining about the caffeine relief, you know. And we're, we're talking about the, this, is, this is on the, on, on the brink of, of death. And, um, and, uh, and her description is so beautiful at the end. They were asked if there were any individuals who wished to repent and spare the ordeal again. So he asked them to do it again. Mud-covered figures with feverish eyes looked at the clean-shaven German officer in silent defiance. And so ten times they repeated the humiliating performance, each time with more determination, each time with more strength climbing and sliding from an unknown Polish mountain on which the soggy Yom Kippur night became a symbol of Jewish courage. And so he turned to them and he said to them at the end of this, and this I did put in over here, is uh, uh, in Source 12. After the ordeal was over, a uh, uh, young German officer of low rank walked over to the group and said, I don't know who will win this war. But one thing I am sure of is people like you, a nation like yours, will never do it to be defeated. Never. And he was right. And he was right. Is that that is what Azaz Ponim looks like in its best of forms. Meaning to say, how many times have Jews have been, been asked about their, giving up their lives or, their, or, or sacrificing their beliefs? And they've sacrificed their lives more than their beliefs. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews throughout the course of history have had to make these decisions and they made them. Because that, and this is the first, what the, the Gemara was saying at the beginning, not as a negative characteristic, but specifically the characteristic our Kaddish Baruch Hu wanted. I want you to be the most resilient, the most obstinate of nations to keep holding on to the value system that, I believe, that, that, that is important to me. This is the, the, the second idea, something which I think we really resonate with. Yes, maybe. I just want to point out, I, I think for the previous one, and the other one says, oh, you'll be of Salom, I think, especially during the time period that so I was wondering that as well. So Saluf sometimes means the cross. The cro it does mean the cross. So it could mean whether it's a, a name for a, uh, for a Christian or the question is, is, is it a choice between um, Judaism or crucifixion? So it could be even more intense in terms of that reading. I agree with you. So I'm not sure specifically what it refers to here, but it has clearly that background about making... Sure, absolutely. So, and, and so this, the, the, these are the types of decisions that Jews have had to make. So I believe that this is, the, this is, um, is, uh, is, is another aspect of it. So whether we look at it as, so to speak, the child that needs the greatest amount of education because they're going to be the ambassador for this idea of God in the world that everybody else will have to learn from, idea number one, Rav Hirsch, or idea number two, this idea that, that, that it becomes that they are going to be the pallbearers. They're going to um, share this idea with the world um, obstinately despite all breakage, despite all, all pressure. Perhaps it's the third idea. This is this just I was resonating on with myself. The mission that ended towards the end of Perikah Avos, the, the towards the end of the fifth Perikah Perikah Avos, famously says, um, in the name of Yehuda ben Tamer, he says the following, Heve az kanamer, be brazen like the leopard, kal kanesher, light like the eagle, rotskitsi, run like the deer, or the hind, vigibor ka'ari, and strong like a lion, lasos ritzoin, avicho sheba shamayim. So these are four attributes we learn from four different animals which we're supposed to incorporate into our character and our lives. 
And um, then he goes to say, on to say, not somebody else, the same uh, same Yehuda ben Tema, who are your Omer, as ponim le Gehinnom, boshes ponim le Gana Eden. Those who are brazen go to Gehinnom. Those who are shamefaced, which is the opposite of as ponim, go to uh, go to uh, Gan Eden. And then the mission ends off curiously. He wrote some of the There's a very unusually the mission goes out of its character and says this is a pray a plea a supplication that we Hashem should build or rebuild the base of Midash. Interesting, right? Very curious mission. Curious on a few counts. First of all, why do we have this here at the end? Why is it Yehuda ben Tamar is actually contradicting himself? Right on the first, uh, the first part, he says one of the laudable characteristics is as panim, as kanamer, and then he says, but you go to Gehinnom if you have it. Which is fascinating, right? And isn't it interesting? It's the same idea. Wherever you see as panim, you see a dichotomy of, of value. So the, there are many Mephoshim who explain, uh, try to take it. So as an example, the Ruach Haim, Ruach Haim says a very, very basic idea. He says, um, not basic, but uh, in, in trying to resolve this, he says, as kanamer on the top of the next page, Sometimes it's good to be brazen, to be impudent, to be obstinate. Aval who rak ba aviros shebalev she v'shiya azus tafun beliboy v'lola oreirosay rak lufiyam itzarech lavodas hashemis parach. When is azus? When is this obstinacy, this brazenness, good? When it remains in the heart. When we're asked to make hard decisions, and we make those hard decisions. However. I will be him when it comes out to our face and we become just a difficult person to be around all the time. Then you should not show it. Um, so the way it's supposed to be is that internally we're supposed to be resilient, externally soft. Right? Sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes you find it that, uh, that, that you can be very externally difficult and internally soft. But what he's saying is the correct way of, of having it is, is resilient in the core and soft on the outside. The reason why, this, this is why the way that he suggests, uh, answers this, many Mephoshim say, why is the Hiratsan in this Mishnah here? Because this is really technically speaking, the end of Pirkei Avos, the sixth Perak of Pirkei Avos, the Perak of Kenyan Torah, the Perak Vov, is actually an additional Perak. So this is the end of it, so this is all the way that the Mesechta ends. Ah, there are two Mishnayas afterwards, Ben Hei and Ben Bagbag, and the 18, the, the, the years of Mishnayas, and Ben Chamesh Lemikra, which is the next Mishnah, that really should have gone beforehand, and the Mephoshim said, that's why the Yiratzon is over here. I would like to suggest that everything comes together, and that is, uh, and, uh, as, we, as we thought about it, in fact, last week. Last week, we looked at the notion of empathy uh, being, uh, being a, a core, core value when it comes to nationhood. And, the, and one, of the, one of the expressions of empathy is boishas panim, right? Or boishas, uh, busha, which is one of the values that is necessary to have the nation. It's interesting that busha is the opposite of azus. Interesting, right? Boishas panim legan eden, az panim legehinam. It's interesting that a Jew needs to require, it requires having both of those, but in a healthy way. My, my suggestion is the following. Oh, by the way, just before we even get into the suggestion, first halach in Shulchan Aruch. The first, when you open up the Shulchan Aruch, the first thing we encounter is this, this, this very attribute. The Shulchan Aruch says, "Yiskaber kari la mabavoke alavaras barach shiehu ma'areres hashakar." The first halach in Shulchan Aruch is get up strong, right? Uh, destroy the snooze, right? Just just get up, uh, and and uh, and you should be ma'areres hashakar. You should. Now it's interesting, by the way, just out of interest. Lions do do a lot of sleeping, especially male lions. In case you've done done research, so obviously there's there's something more to this. And I'm going to leave that as just a question: is if you go if you go out and check out what lions are doing all day, especially the male lions, they're sleeping all day while the, while, while while the pride are hunting for him. So you have to work out what this iskaber ka'ari means. Um, there's obviously a little more to it. 
But be as the mate, what's the, what's the Shulchan Aruch doing? It's choosing one of the four attributes that Yehuda ben Taimah said in the form of Gevura as attributed to the line. However, the Ramah, Rav Moshe Isilis says that it's not enough. It's not enough just to have that. And he goes on further to say, You shouldn't be... Um, and be too late for davening. And he goes on to say, You have to imagine Hashem, you have to envision Hashem in front of you all the time, which is usually written above Aaron HaKodesh's, um, that, that statement based on this Pasuk, and this, which is in Tehillim and in this Halach and Shulchan Aruch. If you're by yourself, or you're in the presence of a very important person, like a king, you act differently than when you're at home and you, you sort of, you know, roll up the sleeves. So you should live a life where you believe that Hashem's presence is with you even in your basic interactions on a day-to-day -day basis and therefore it changes the way that you, you, you're behind closed doors, how you act. And you'll always be embarrassed and shamed that, that to, be, to, to be more careful about the way you act. Now, he has, he has where he adds in our leopard. But don't be embarrassed by those who, who will mock us for doing what we're supposed to. Don't, don't allow our timidity uh, and our timidness to, uh, to allow us to be shifted or to be swayed by what other people say. We need to be strong enough to, to uh, do it. What, what the Ramah is doing is he's adding in the Azus of the leopard over here as well. And so, to me, what, what, seems to, what seems to me is that when is Azus, when is this obstinacy, when is this brazenness um, essentially most used? When is it, when is it the, the time that uh, one has to um, uh, capitalize on this, use this characteristic, is when you have B'nai Adam Hamal Igemolov, when you have people who are saying nay, people who are saying that you don't really, you shouldn't act in this way. Why, Jew, are you always doing what's different. Why are you walking in the opposite direction of the traffic? It reminds me of just one of my favorite jokes about the, the, this, this, uh, this woman is, is, is watching the TV on, um, around the time her husband comes home from work and she sees that there's a maniac on the highway that her husband comes home from work who's driving the wrong way up the highway on the, on the wrong side of the street, right? So he must have come from Europe, you know, drive, drive the, other side of, the other side of the street. And, um, and so she calls up her husband. She says, honey, I just want you to be careful. I'm just watching the news right now. There's some, uh, some idiot who's, who's driving the wrong way. I just want you to just take it easy. So he says, he says, he says it's not just one of them, they're all doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and in a certain sense, that's sometimes what it's like. That's sometimes what it's like is that, is that in, and not, not, not uh, advocating for, any, uh, for that kind of behavior, but sometimes we feel like we're doing what's right and the rest of the world tells us that it's completely wrong. When does that happen? When is that moment in, in, in our lives I believe that this relates to a specific time period in Jewish history, and that is the diaspora reality. Come, let's come back to what, what, what Rav Amiel said. I think that's a prof the profound key to all of this. That when we live in a place, in a time, in a, where there's sovereignty, where we have a country, where we have a base Mikdash, where we have what we'll call modality A of operating, where Hashem, where Hashem aspired and inspired us to, um, to, to get to, then we, we have the ability to relax a little bit 
and to be boyish upon him, to have bush upon him, to have this, this softness of heart and softness of face and be able to do what we're supposed to be doing. But for the vast majority of Jewish history, that's not been the case. We've been in mode B. Mode B is, is where we're not sovereign. We have passports, if lucky, of another nation, sometimes marked with a J, sometimes marked with a star, and we live at the will and the whim of some other country, at uh, some other so uh, sovereign nation. It's during those periods in history that we are as Panim. And that's what's got us through, as the Medrash says, or Yehudi, or Tzaluf, that we need to be able to do this. And therefore, I think what, what Yehudi ben Tamer is saying is that intrinsically, as Panim Gehinam, it's not where we want to be. We don't want to become the mold of the mask that we form for ourselves in order to survive religiously and culturally and to live with our ideals. We don't want to be that way, but we have to be as, um, uh, we have to be, um, as Kanamer when we are in the face of those who are malig in love. But says the Mishnah, how does the Mishnah end? Says the Mishnah, may it be your will, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that you should build the base of Mikdash and that we should, you should bring back your shkinat among us. Because what's, the, what's the, the, the mission really essentially saying? How is that the natural ending? Is Hashem, we've had to deal with these two modalities of existence. We prefer to be Babashas Panim. We prefer to be where we don't have to exercise Azus Panim for the course of Jewish history because of those who are Allah, because of not just the individuals, but the nations in the world, which asks us why it is that we exist. Why are we carrying to, on holding on to our culture? And so, in a certain sense, we, we ask for the retirement of the need of this way of operating as well. Hashem chose us, and we have that innate characteristic, and it needs to be used at certain times. But let's ensure, HaKadosh Baruch that we don't have to use it the whole time, that we can become a little softer, that we can become a little less resilient to have to fight the tides of time together. Be'ezras Hashem. There's a, a, lot of, a lot of food for thought in, in ourselves, and in our nation. Folks, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for taking the time. Have a wonderful, meaningful week ahead. Um, and